This show is part of the Electric Agora network of podcasts. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Everyday Philosophers. This is a show where we profile the work of philosophers who are neither Twitter famous nor research famous, but are doing good and important work none the same. My guest today is Alberto Mendoza uh, Larinaga. I'm doing my best to pronounce that. It's got double R's, so I think I'm supposed to roll. And he teaches at Antelope Valley College. Did I get all that right, more or less? You got it all right, Ralph. Yep. All right. So as as usual, I like to start these things with a small talk question. So my small talk question to you, uh, Alberto, is what are your medical conditions? Alive. Alive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you, now, are you considering it's... that a, uh, a, a disease? Like you hope you hope you get this over with soon? Yes. Yeah. I mean, that, that's why one becomes a philosophy major, right? <laughs> I think I've been reading better never to have been too much. Maybe that's why I consider it a medical. <laughs> so, so, so you're, you're trying to just get through this. What is it that Socrates said? Philosophy is a way to learn how to die. <laughs> that's usually the line I use during funerals. It doesn't go well, very well. <laughs> <laughs> and this person learned it just in time. Yep. Um, so, so a little bit of backstory. Uh, Alberto was a student of mine at California State University Northridge before he became a professor at Antelope Valley College. Um, so we're going to talk today about what it's like to teach at Antelope Valley College. And I really want to say Antelope State Valley College, but there is no Antelope State, I don't think. Mm. There's no, like, there's no state called Antelope or Antelope. Not that I'm aware of, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the secret state. All right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so let's start by talking about Antelope Valley College. So where is Antelope Valley College, first of all? Yeah, out here in uh, the Antelope Valley, right? Lancaster, California, <laughs> right? Uh, uh-huh. Lancaster, Palmdale area. So it's a big um, engineering community. So you have Lockheed, Boeing, mm-hmm. Northrop, not too far away in Kern County, you have um, Edwards Air Force Base. So it's, it's big on STEM and all that type of stuff. So we get... We're very lonely in the philosophy area, but uh, we, mm-hmm. we try and, and corrupt them any way we can, right? Those STEM majors. So are most of the students at Antelope Valley um, would be engineers or would be STEM majors at least? At least STEM majors. I believe the number one um, major of it is actually nursing. Oh, okay. It tends to be that. So, um, but yeah, a lot of STEM for sure. It's very big. The, the college has a good relationship with all the engineering folks out there and uh, a lot of adjuncts and even full-timers um, out there too tend to be have degrees in that and used to work there too so uh, and how many philosophers are in your department over there well let's see we have two full-timers and then I think five part-time yeah adjuncts now are you a full-timer no I'm an adjunct yeah and how long have you been an adjunct here at Antelope Valley College since 2013 yeah, it's 2013. 2013. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you've been there for eight years, so you probably have a really good sense of how it works. Yes, yes, yes. yes. I hope so, so anyways. <laughs> so tell me first of all, so I'm, I'm going to, broadly speaking, I'm going to ask you what it's like to be an Antelope Valley College. Um, broadly speaking, uh, like, I, I don't know where to begin. You've told me that your students are people who are mostly STEM majors. Um, do most of them have... Um, do most of them get associate's degree and then go, or do they transfer to four-year colleges? Do you know how that works? Yeah, so I mean, looking at the rates, it's it's um, disconcerting for sure, right? I I can't remember exactly, right? It's certainly less than 50%, maybe about 20, 30%. I believe that successfully transferred to uh, um, 
a university in this case. Now, again, not everyone wants to transfer, right? Like I said, the number one is, uh, is nursing. So they do the program within uh, the same college system. Often, sometimes they go to different community college or university, uh, but a good chunk you know, also stay there. But it's um, something that we're trying to change for sure is to get um, students better prepared, I think, for yeah. that. And oftentimes it's not, I think, um, you know, a lot of them obviously are first generation college yeah. students. So oftentimes it's not, I think, um, educational. Education is not the problem. I think necessarily so oftentimes. And I remember me being also a first uh, first generation college student. Uh, we don't know the rules. We don't know yeah. who to go to, right? So I'm like, uh, uh, my parents would fortunately just be like, hey, you know what? Bust your chops, uh, get an educational degree. But if I would ask them, well, who, how would you do it? Or where'd you go? Or, or how'd you go about it? They, you know, unfortunately, they'd have to shake their head. They just busted their butt to get us here, right? To this country and uh, and put education, certainly at the high pedestal. But uh, how to go about it, I think, is a big struggle that I've been seeing with a lot of community college students. In this so what, when you say they have, they have struggles with how to go about it, does that, um, does that mean that... Um, it's like, like how, how fundamental is this? Is it the case that they don't, I mean, they must, well, I shouldn't say they must, I'm not gonna presume anything. Do they not know that they're, when they're supposed to get to class? Do they not know how to find their class schedule? Do they not know what they're supposed to do when they're in class? Do they not know how to pay for the class? Like what sort of obstacles are we talking about here? A bit of all of that, I'd say, Robert, to be honest, I think the big thing is also maybe uh, a lot of that stuff, I think, right? I mean, here's literally, you have a, a street called division, right? So you have a bunch uh -huh. of the, uh, schools over here, right, that are more for um, uh, people of color, right, BIPOC mm -hmm. as well, and then more affluent area, right, the other side with the two big high schools, Corks Hill and, and Highland. Um, so it wasn't until sociologists, right, <laughs> like, like we literally have a, a street called division. I'm like, you know what, I just thought it as division, not literally to divide us, but <laughs> right. that seems to be the case, right. So I think depending on where you come from, right, so I'll know just two different experiences, and I'll get to answering your question. I went to AD High School out here. I think it's the oldest high school. And my experience going to, let's say, the area where the principals or counselor's offices was like going um, to prison, right? A very dark, uh -huh. land, right? Over here, I'm like, what, what am I in trouble for, right? And I was just picking something up. Compared to my youngest uh, brother over here, right? A 16-year difference only, right? So when I would go pick him up at Fort Salem, um, you'd see the flags, right? Well, you went to Notre Dame as well, right? So you see Notre Dame or, or Stanford or right CSUN, all these flags where the students went to and the counselors ready to help you and inspire you uh, and complete difference from uh, the other place. So I think what that leads to is oftentimes, is, you're right, they maybe struggle with finding a class, how to participate in the classroom setting, how to write sometimes uh, certain papers and what to expect of them. Uh, to also like, uh, where do I find the counselor? What classes should I take next? So, mm -hmm. I mean, in credit of a, uh, the community college, we're certainly trying more and more to, uh, you know, send out emails and communicate with people, but um, being part of committees um, on campus too, I've also said, well, it's also falls on us more than would be, let's say at a university level, university level, they expect you to know this stuff, right? Like, hey, you should know this stuff already. Here, we're trying to make it more, we're like, yes, get used to, right? Looking at your official ABC email account, uh, know when to go, what to do, how to do it and so on. Um, so we're just struggling with that, hopefully understanding our um, um, 
yeah, our, our, our students, our types of students in that case. So yeah, it could be simple as counseling issues to how do I go and what link do I click to register for next semester? So, so would it be fair to say that one of the main, I'm not going to say challenges so much as one of the main remits for Antelope Valley College is not just teaching students subject matter, making sure they learn the stuff, but also teaching them norms about how to navigate academia. And if, if, if that second thing is like one of your major missions as a, as a college, um, then do you, um, what do you do besides send emails to that? Do you have like here, you know, uh, for students in their first semester, you have a class dedicated to teaching them how to be in a university, what sort of things to do? How, how do you go about that? Yeah, uh, it's not uh, required, but it's highly recommended, especially if they go to a counselor. Like, hey, you know what? Take um, Human Development 101. And I think there it teaches you the basics of how to like navigate college, what to expect, um, how to read, you know, the, the reading part, right, in textbooks and things like that. Um, so they do have that class, but often, um, since it's not required, they don't have to take it, though. I think, I believe it does count for... Um, at least a Cal State is transferable. I don't think it's for UC transferable. Um, mm -hmm. But again, since it's not required, hey, you know, not everyone. So every once in a while, right? Well, uh, you know, we, we, I have colleagues of different sorts, as, as you know, right? Working at a university, different places, that's, um, we don't care. You should know this, right? That's your problem. Others yeah. that say, um, no, you know what? Here in my lesson plan, hey, by the way, you guys make sure that you check Canvas, make sure that you check this or check that. Um, yeah those type of things. So I think it's just kind of integrated into those lessons, you know, by the way, you know, check this. So. And is that, is that your approach? You spend a fair bit of time in your class, making sure your students understand how to take a class kind of thing. Yeah. In some sense. And I think to be honest, at first it was frustrating. I'm like, I just want to come in here and just start teaching, right. But go to yeah. Socrates or Kant or whatever, right. Or W.D. Ross or uh, mm -hmm. whatever the case might be. And um it was frustrating at first, and, and I think the big issue is just self-reflecting and, and remembering, uh, right? That golden rule, right? The, that yeah. that email that I'm sure you saw. Yeah, that, right? I saw that. Yeah, it gets to be treated in the same situation. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, in case people don't know what uh, what Al right. Alberto is talking about, at the end of all of Alberto's emails, <laughs> he has a formulation of the golden rule by who? Who did it? Geisler? It's, Gensler? Uh, yeah, Harry Gensler, who's now a retired. Um, well, um, Jesuit priest, right? Magician, philosopher from mm -hmm. my people. He, he, he uh, was at Yale. Oh, he, he's at Loyola now? Okay. Loyola, I think yeah. he was a lecturer at Yale for a while, but I, I didn't realize he was a Jesuit priest. That's interesting. And yeah, he wrote a whole book I know about a defense of the golden rule as the fundamental principle yeah. of ethics and, you know, tries to, as right. far as I know, he's the only person who's done that, which is quite surprising to me because it's so, uh, what should I say? So popular and so seemingly easy to, to follow, right? right? And yet not utilitarian. So that's kind of interesting. But going back, um, so you were thinking to yourself, look, I was once, well, are, were you thinking I was once somebody who didn't know how to do this? Or were you thinking, look, if I had been somebody who didn't know how to do this, I would have wanted somebody to do this for me. Yeah, you know, I, I think of both in that sense too, right? I mean, I, I think our students along my wife too, who she was a first generation student. Now, fortunately, she's um, a year away at earning her EDD um, in this. Oh, case. great. Yeah, kudos to her. And um, we had that attitude. It's like, you know what, we'll figure it out. If I can't find a counselor, I'll figure it out. I'll look it up, you know, um, how to do it. But I know not everyone has 
maybe even those that mentality i guess in some way and certainly it's not a judgment so i have to remember that it's um not everyone can think that way and so if i'm in um it was in that position right would i want maybe my professor or whoever's there to kind of like hey you know what here's some tips here's how i would go about it um and so that that's how i i I guess right reading Gensler in that sense and and reading other stuff about diversity understanding our student population um i reflected on that and said you know there's no need to be frustrated about this it's um yeah students uh, they they I think they're putting uh, forth their, their best effort. And uh, I should do the same in this because they're not assume that, oh, well, this is obvious. Why don't you know something, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's like, okay, here, in case you don't know, right? So that way I don't embarrass somebody. Oh, wait, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to know that. Like, in case you don't know, you know, do this or do that or X, Y, and Z, so, yeah. So, so what sort of challenges do your students have besides just having to acquaint themselves with the norms of academia? Uh, like, for instance, do a lot of your students have part-time jobs, full-time jobs, family responsibilities, that kind of stuff? And if so, what do you do as a professor to accommodate that, if anything? Or do you think, no, they have to learn how to do a college course load despite having these responsibilities? And if I take it too easy on them, they're going to get a rude awakening if they go to a CSU or if they go to a UC. Or what do you, what's your thinking about that? Oof. That's a good question. <laughs> well, I try to at least look into, right? I mean, um, maybe finding the best of, of all worlds in this case, right? In, in some sense, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think the material is, is challenging enough when it comes to philosophy. Um, so they, they got a lot to deal with and I, and I certainly try my best to help them out in that sense. Um, and, and the other um, aspect of it, I, I again, I don't make the assumption that you should already know, you should know how to do this or that. So at least what I try to do is go even just start at the basics that I, at least I believe are the basics. And even just, you know, first or second week, just sit, literally sit down and like, let's read this passage or this paragraph here with this philosopher or whatever. Uh, here, I have a question. Let me circle that. Uh, what's this definition mean? Let me put it to the side and, and write it. And let me look it up later. So I even go through that process with them to try and um, mimic or show them right in some way how maybe one way to do these type of things as well um, at the same time like I said I think deadlines are important especially I think coming in uh, especially within honors class that I teach um, I said you guys well folks are going to do a lot of reading right and they're not gonna and so I, I have them break up into journals and I make them do before class so that way we can at least talk about them, even though I'm like, you know, especially when they get to someone like Kant, like, I don't know what the heck that guy was saying, right? Maybe in German, it'll, it'll, I'll understand <laughs> no. it. And then I tell them, Believe I'm like, me, no. no. <laughs> from, I'm like from, from my, my oh, former professors and others say, no, just because it's German, it, it doesn't mean like, oh yeah, now everything makes sense. So I said, no, that, that won't help either, right? So don't go out just, I mean, go t- learn German, no problem, but don't go learn in German thinking like Kant will make much more sense to me. Um, Still, go learn German, no problem. But um, <laughs> I, I, I do tell them, um, yeah, it's tough. It's tough in this case. So deadlines are important in that sense. And, and I tell them, look, assume here there are no exceptions um, because the reason I want us is to discuss these type of things. So so though I think I am, um, I don't want to say lenient, and I think I, I'm very standing. And I think something that the pandemic has, I think, um, allowed us, uh, maybe as instructors, I don't want to speak for everyone, right, is, is understanding, I think, the... Um, 
the hardships that a lot of our students uh, go through. And so even at the point where, uh, like I said, look, um, again, going back to that pesky golden rule, I used to say, here, give me this documentation if you miss class or if you miss an exam. I say, look, now I have this policy. I say, just be honest with me, right? Mm -hmm. And I use very that Kantian essence of autonomy. If you know the truth, then I get to decide how to go about it in this case. So um, be honest with me and we'll go from there. If you did tell me, you know what, heaven forbid that one of your parents passed away, you caught COVID or someone else did, I'm like, oh, I'll believe you and we'll reschedule the exam or extension for a paper or whatever. And we'll go from there. Just, I said, just use that policy and let's move on with life, right? We're adults. So I'd like to say, I think that it's just a bit of a, um, a balance between those two things, right? The hardships and understanding, but also knowing that I think deadlines are important. And do you, do you find that when you say, be honest with me, sometimes the students say, I just didn't feel like doing it? Or do they never say, yeah. they do say that. And when they say that, yeah. how, do you, how do you react? Do you say, okay, thank you for being honest. Now you're gonna get penalized or, or do you not penalize them because you're afraid if you penalize them, they'll start lying to you? <laughs> but I, I haven't thought about that latter way, but I say, thank you for being honest with me. You've earned, and I usually use that word earned a zero or earned this. So um, yeah. I don't really worry about the consequence. Like now they're gonna start lying to me. Um, I, I'd say, hey, look, I mean, yeah, I think one time I had someone that they came to me the next class after an exam. They said, you know what? I'm not gonna lie to you. I was partying in Vegas and that's why I didn't make it. I'm like, oh, cool. I hope you had fun. Um, you still earned the zero, all right? I, I, I do hope at least you had a good time in Vegas and it was worth it, I don't know. Um, so, so the main thing is that you, you don't take it personally. You don't, right. you don't like judge their choices as like, wow, you really have the wrong attitude to this class. It's you're saying you're adults. If you want to spend your time by partying instead of studying, you're going to have the consequences, but you know, that's fine. I'm not, I'm not mad. Um, yeah. And like I said, that, that it took me a while, right. I think to, to get to that place. Cause at first like, how dare you, how dare you not take my class that, per, you know, like number one, right. You're the scum of the earth, buddy. Um, <laughs> no, no. Uh, uh, get out. Uh, no. I, and like I said, Hey, it's a personal choice. You decided to do with that. Thanks for letting me know. Let's move on with life. And, and most yeah. they say, okay, cool. I, I, you know, they decided to drop the class or keep going. So, yeah. yeah. And now um, what, what, um, given that so many of your students, like are a lot of your students, first generation, most, a significant portion, yeah. how, would you say yeah, most? most? Mm-hmm. How, how do, um, and, and not only are most of your students first generation, but a lot of your students plan to go into the STEM field. So how do they react to philosophy? Uh, probably like Richard Feynman and a lot of these pop culture types of, uh, uh, what is it, uh, scientists or whatever, right? Uh, Neil Tyson Grassy and uh, uh, other ones. Yeah, that's like, oh, well, why do we need this kind of thing? Or yeah. I took it because it was the most interesting thing out of the like, the, the least interesting things or something or some taking like I, I want to take critical thinking because I didn't want to take another English class I'm like well I mean you're going to include a lot of that stuff in this so I don't know maybe yeah. you're going to regret it later but but I think oftentimes honestly maybe I think I think coming from they, they learn that I think once they're there and often it's not from our colleagues I think from STEM it's just kind of like because I have we have allies there right I, I you know I, I could um uh, buddy of mine over there, Dr. Mark McGovern, he's, uh, he teaches astro, uh, astronomy, right, in physics. He's like, you know what, a, a great class that I wish everybody would take is in philosophy is critical thinking. He's like, that's what really sparked my mind in going into astrophysics and things like that. So I'm like, hey, please tell your students, uh, Mark, right, I don't want them coming in like, oh, why do we need this? And, and so since that's um, when it comes to 
knowing the reality of some attitudes of like, well, you know, this whole theoretical philosopher, just sit down, just, you know, think about something and then not being able to do anything in your life. Um, I, I come in and with the approach and talk about things with like philosophy of science. And so I'm like, well, let's look at the scientific method. What is it, right? It, it's making really a lot of these metaphysical claims, right? Can we go about saying that for sure without a shadow of a doubt, I have a proof, a proof that the physical world exists. I'm like, that's tough. That's yeah. I'm like, ask, I'm like, I know your, your STEM professors and ask them or tell them, give me the uh, you know, definite proof that we live in a physical universe. I'm like, they can't, they can't, not, not definitively in that sense. So, so I said, I, I think I gathered their attention that way. Like, oh, okay, right. And again, being a former person who studied math as well, I said, well, you, you, I get a lot of these math majors too. I said, well, look, when I teach logic, I try to uh, connect the dots between these type of things as well. And, and also go with the nature of mathematics, right? Well, what are numbers? Where do they come from? Tangentials of the mind or do they exist without us? And so on. So, so I, I, I try to go about it that way. Try to meet them uh, where their majors are at. So one of the first things I ask them is like, well, what are you guys majoring in? What are you, you know, guys, gals majoring in? And, and I jot it down and make sure that I try and bring up examples uh, when it comes to those type of things as well. So, um, and, and I, I guess relating it, before I forget to something that she said, how... Um, how is it that maybe I deal with, with the pedagogy inside the classroom in some sense too, is, is um, with logic like this. And no, I mean, it is difficult to make logic interesting to students, right? I think even to philosophy folks, it's very rare that you, know, you get someone like Grand Priest and say, yeah, I totally love it. Let, let's keep talking about it. Um, it's rare. I've gotten some, I write very like, I don't know, I've taught it for, what is it, six years and maybe 10 students have said, hey, this is totally interesting, right? So okay. um, very, very few. It's not likely that they will. So I have to add in some examples. So when we're, we finally get to, let's say, predicate logic, I say, well, here's an example of a, a, a didactic over here. So I said, for those of you that are, um, you know, uh, denoting something specifically, a right person, place, et cetera, thing, I say, uh, are, are any of you lip pointers, right? And those who are will understand lip pointers. So that my like my wife, she's from El Salvador, right? She was born okay. here, but she, she's uh, a family from El Salvador. So they tend to them Central America and I believe some parts of uh, like Philippines, they tend to refer, they know something with their lips. So if I would say, oh right, if my wife were to come in, I'm like, oh I'm currently you know, and I'm pointing with my lips. Oh she knows that I'm referring that I'm I'm, I'm uh, having this conversation or a meeting or something so i'm like oh yeah where's the mac and cheese located and the point with their lips so i said well look get those lip pointing and refers to some sort of specific entity right so let's say for she or her right she is a philosophy major so i'll write that up on the board right and then i'm like mm, is a blah 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 and i ah. think that captures their they're like oh okay like okay and so hopefully when they do it and, and i've had some my feedback they said yes yeah, so now when i'm writing these funny symbols and stuff that for some reason they call alien code or something like that, right? Uh, writing this stuff, they're like, oh, you know, what comes to mind is like that lip pointing example. And I think it relates to them much more than like, here you go, right? And, and just start babbling all the academic stuff about it. So it's like, yeah, let's babble about the academic stuff, but do something that they can relate to as well. So, so how do your students feel about um, your class? I mean, of course, I'm sure some of your students don't like your class, some of your students do like your class. Some of them like it in different ways, but do you do you find that 
that they leave your class thinking, oh, now I have a sense of what philosophy is. And it's actually pretty interesting because one of the things about philosophy, maybe we're just bad at publicity, but I find that it's a major where very few people have any sense of what it is they're going to get when they first start taking classes in philosophy. And I imagine that's even more so the case at the community college level when you have a bunch of people who are either first-generation college students or who are much more interested in very practical or vocational disciplines or both. And then they go into here and you're asking them, how do you know the world exists? And they're thinking, this is dumb. Like, who cares? Like, what does it matter? Um, so, so how do they leave your class? Uh, dumbfounded, right? Stupefied, <laughs> petrified, right? Yeah, no, <laughs> no um, you know what? That just reminded me too, Robbie. It's like my poor, my poor mother to this day went, oh, what does your son do? He said, oh, he teaches philosophy. Oh, is that, you know, I really don't know. I'm like, well, that's not, my mother doesn't even know what it is. So, so, um, <laughs> Yeah, they always <laughs> yeah, like, okay, cool, let's move on with life then, right? Um, I, I think, honestly, that they come to most and say, like, totally not what I expected, right? Like, cool, I was expecting maybe something like The Matrix or something like that, right? Um, asking these weird, or not even, not even sure what questions were to come about in this case. So, oh, never really thought to, to question this or question that. And so again, that's why I think it's important for me to relate it back to their majors, uh, because you're right, I think we're very bad at publicity. So even when, like I said, even teaching, let's say informal fallacies, I'd say, well, these, for those of you going into law school, becoming lawyers, if you're going to go in the courtroom, which not all lawyers are in the courtroom, of course, but you know, these sometimes informal fallacies help you out when doing, a, calling out objections and things like that. A complex question could be something like leading the, the witness, things like that. So um, I, again, I try to just relate it that way. And uh, the feedback I've gotten some, as you're right, right there, like I, the hell with philosophy, right? Too many questions, not enough answers. Um, they drop the class or they tell me, you know what, don't take it personally. I just I wasn't interested in it. But I think most of them do leave with the sense of um, I got something from it. And uh, it's just an interesting way to view the world. They're like, I probably won't ever take another philosophy class, but uh, yeah, I, uh, I appreciate, you know, at least being just um, uh, exposed to this type of thinking in a way. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so let's transition over to your uh, work as a philosopher. So um, what sort of research are you doing uh, right now if, if you're doing research or if not, why not? Or However, or however you want to take that. What did you get your your graduate degree doing work on? That kind of thing. So, how do you want to answer that? So, in, in this case, what I've gotten more down is um, a, a deal with logic right now, logic and critical thinking. In this case, yeah, I've gotten into certainly um, ethics was was that area, especially like I said, W. D. Ross and intuitionism was, was something that really caught my attention. But mm -hmm. I put that stuff on pause. Um, because what I got more interested in, especially now, is um, we have to teach, or for us at Philosophy 110, Introduction to Logic, and we have to teach it to uh, nursing students. So nursing students, the first question they come in is, what the hell are we going to do with this? Right? Right. And, and again, very frustrated at the beginning, and we say, um, again, especially first teaching, like, why doesn't everybody love philosophy? Yeah, no, not everyone does, and that's okay. So... I, I have to, in some sense, sell it. And I remember reading, and I can't 
remember the author, but in, in Chronicle of Higher Education said, a lot of professors are often offended by the question, when am I gonna use this? And, this, and she noted, she's like, I'm gonna be honest with you guys. Um, I don't know when you're gonna use it, <laughs> right? I don't know when you're gonna sit down and write this proof or think about the existence of life, things like that. Like, I really don't know, right? But here's these tools in case it happens one day, these can be provided for you. So uh, for my end, it's an, well, at least what they think an unrelated field, the reason they haven't taken, the nursing majors taking um, our class is because it's to prepare them to, or they should be pre-nursing majors actually. So is that to get into nursing school, they have to take the T's, right? Similar, just like the, for, for law school, it's the LSAT, for graduate school, oh, okay. et cetera. So for them, it's to get into it. And a big, a good part of it is reading comprehension. And so um, they want to take logic so and critical thinking so they can get that part down, and especially reading the textbook and so on, which is oh, dense, dense textbooks and things like that. So um, what I've gotten more into is um, recently ran into even some work by Debbie Hutchins, who, who I believe now is doing the art of reasoning, which is a logic textbook. And she's writing stuff on like how best to teach logic to students mm -hmm. uh, in this case. And so that's what I've been getting more into. And I'm actually working on a open educational resource of writing my own logic textbook and including the examples that I noted over here, the lip pointing for predicate logic or other examples that do with our community of students. Um, when it comes to that type of informal fallacies, right? That uses names that aren't just candidate X or something like that. I'm like, well, how about like Jose or something like that? Or, <laughs> right. You know, instead of some weird random person, right? Uh, and then we, I don't know. Oh, so, so, so I, I can, I can imagine somebody saying, you know, how come the names are always Smith and Jones? Why yeah. isn't it like yeah. <laughs> Takashi and, you know, uh, Shinsuke or something, but, right. um, but you're saying even if, even if you make the name X or Y, that's, I mean, maybe I'm wrong here, but I think naming somebody X or Y is clearly not associating them with any community, right? They're just, they're not even names that any person has. Right. But you think it's important to, to give the characters in your examples names that real people would have to make them some something, something that students can relate to more. <clears throat> and then yeah, yeah. and then even perhaps now, now do you do you feel like you should try to include names from every kind of like ethnic community or do you focus on Hispanic communities because that is say more your student population? No, from everyone from in my kids, absolutely that I can't, at least, you know, I mean, um, I certainly do try to do that. Um, again, the, the biggest pop, uh, student population over there or demographics for us is uh, how they're noting, right? Hispanic slash Latinx, right? That's how they have it uh, grouped over there. So is I think about 60% or so are student population there. So it's a good chunk of, of our folks right there. But you have African-Americans slash black students, indigenous and, um, the, Asian Americans and so on. So um, absolutely, like you said, right, Takashi, or as much as Rob, as much as Jose, as much as Tatiana, right? Yeah. Uh, use even some right African-American philosopher, right? Cornell West and their Web Boys, Dubois, um, and so on. So even include a lot of, right, and, and also former professor, I've had females too, right? Uh, uh, Greek-Canadian Anna Karastathis, right? She, she's now in, in Greece working her stuff, but including a, a lot of, um, I think these examples, and I think it relates better uh, to them rather than, as you said, candidate X. So what I will tell them is then when you're writing, it's important to depersonalize a lot of this stuff because then you get too personal and you make the paper about yourself rather than the, the topic at hand. So yes, 
I would recommend, especially when you're first just writing this stuff, very few people I think are very good at integrating right the personal narrative along with what the topic is. So I said for now, when you're writing in this case, just depersonalize it. And yes, use the boring person X or person Y. Or let's say person X is, you know, da, 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 da. that way to include that stuff. But I think it does capture um, them a bit better. And that's, again, what I'm trying to work with at least, I guess, at that research, right, or writing that stuff and see what does work. So I've been looking at different textbooks over here. Um, and a lot of them do, I think, lack that. And, and I, I wish I could say it was just me that that came up with this. In this case, it was when I was actually at Cal State LA that someone says, why don't you, if it's, you know, Smith and Jones, right? Why not talk about, and, and the guy was Pakistani. And so I guess he got uh, offended that there weren't examples that looked like him, talked about him or his right. people. And, and I'm like, hey, you know what? That, that makes sense, especially in the area of Cal State LA, East LA area. And you hear about Smith and Joseph all the time. So, so as I tell my students over there, I'm like, look, there's nothing against reading, uh, you know, Kant or Plato or Aristotle, these dead white guys. There's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with it? We say they're the exclusive voice of philosophy. So we got to add more folks to them, like Linda Martin Alcoff um, and, and other great philosophers, right? Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw, uh, Michelle Alexander, into these conversations as well. It's just not exclusive to these dead white guys. So one of the things that interests me is that on the one hand, you, you tell your students when you're writing to depersonalize, but on the other hand, when you're writing your own textbook, you think you need to make it, the examples more personal, otherwise the students won't be able to relate as well. So why is it important for this? And I'm not accusing you of um, hypocrisy, but rather I just I want to- it that way, Rob. <laughs> so I, I want to figure it out more though. Why is it important for, for the way you write your textbook to be uh, something that the students find personally accessible, but it's important for them when they write to make it impersonal? Is it the thought, yeah, is the thought yeah. that it's too easy to be personal and then it's too easy to like go away from the philosophy? And so you need to learn the philosophy first and then you can go to the personal stuff or what? I, I think first is to get, uh, get their interest and then work, I guess, so-called backwards or whichever way you're pointing to forwards. So first I think it's, it's to, get them to grasp the material and then use that material applied, but in, in again, more depersonalized way in that sense. Cause like I said, I mean, I think, um, I think I remember from you and our, our certain walks that we would have when we would encounter each other at CSUN is that you said it's, it's uh, I would call very few people good writers. Right? And huh. I took that personally, Rob. I'm like, man, maybe I am a shitty writer. Right? I'm like, I, I didn't think I was the best either. But anyways, you, you allow me, I think, to self-reflect on that. And even till now, um, think that, yeah, I think he's right. And, and I don't think that's a person say, hey, there's a lot of people write crap. I don't think that's what you meant. But it's very difficult, I think, to be able to balance things and say, look, here's kind of like this balance between that personal narrative and also get to what we're talking about, right? Whether that's on ethics, logic, or anything, to be honest. Um, and so I think for me, my reason for personalizing those, right, with names or examples is to first being able to kind of like bring them into our corner, that philosophical corner, and then in writing process, and then go back with what was learned into that way. And I think the best way in the writing process is a bit differently from teaching and, and getting them to get there than the writing process, which I say, look, from my experience and from papers, what I've said, you know, I've experimented and said, you know what? personalize it, see what comes out of it, is that it becomes more of, a, again, a paper about them rather yeah. than that. So I said, uh, for, for now, just depersonalize it. And I said, 
eventually, if you keep on write this philosophical process or writing process and you keep at it, you'll find that balance. But for now, at least at an introductory level, focus just on this stuff here because you'll find also other um, of your professors, right? Once you get to three, 400 level courses, right? If you decide to transfer, um, they might not accept this too. So I'm also thinking pragmatically that uh, future professors will also um, want to see a certain type of writing coming from them. And it's often not the personalized uh, narrative in this case too. So I, I, I tell them, right, prepare for this stuff, but eventually if you really want to get uh, good at it, keep practicing, keep practicing. Yeah, I, um, I, I've, I've recently adopted this I've had this motto for a while, but this is the first semester I've actually tried to live according to it, which is um, ass give assignments you would be excited to grade. And so what, one of the things that I would, would make me more excited to grade a student's paper is if it is personal, but you're right, it's very hard to include the personal while also including the philosophical. And it's certainly, I've noticed, that students, when they do that, will often have very little philosophical content and it'll be just more like a, an autobiography. So what I have moved to doing this semester is I will do an assignment where I ask them to tell me why they're excited about this topic. And then they can write their personal story there. And then when I read the topic, it can be less personal, but I'll know sort of where it's coming from, which will make it more interesting to me. But let's go back to the, the critical thinking work. So it seems to me then that it's, that your research focus right now is on critical thinking, in particular, writing a critical thinking textbook. And um, do you, what do you find lacking in current critical thinking textbooks that makes you want to write a new one? Is it, is it simply that they're too expensive and you want one that's free or is there something more to it? Well, that for sure is a big thing and that's, that's come out for sure. Like I said, look, I don't mind you know, and, and then especially financial, like I said, I, I was part over here at the Great um, River Learning, and so I had it uh, published from their end over here, and it's just, um, you know, the authors, they get very little money from it, right? So whoever it is, they, they get about, even if they're not, right, maybe 10%, maybe the, the small cut they get, and the publishers are the one that get um, the majority of it, and, and a lot of them I, have been even, I think that inspired me maybe to write it is for sure the cost as well, especially knowing now during this pandemic, like I said, it's just made it into um, more obvious the struggles that our students are going through, especially like I said, at a community college, where I, I think uh, going back to what you have said, that the type of students that we do deal with, it's very rare that they don't work, whether part-time or full-time. So we have to find that balance too. Um, and, and I think not be dismissive and understanding, not to the point where it's a free ride, but understanding like, hey, okay, you know what? I get you work a full-time job. I'll give you an extra day to complete an assignment and so on. But at the reality, I'm thinking, well, look, even if it's like, um, what is it like? Some of these, without calling any names, right? I'm sure you've seen uh, from some of these publishers, like $200 for a logic textbook. I'm like, holy cow. Yeah. I'm like, are, are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> I mean, well, anyway, so um, those 200 bucks, you can justify to the student and say, well, you know what? Your, your um, iPhone bill is cheaper than that. And so it's, and see it as an investment. And, and I try to honestly view it that way. And honestly, when, when it came down to, to pandemic and, and what's, uh, what's, what's important and things like that, I said, even if it's like, I don't know, 80 bucks or 60, and those are the cheaper end textbooks, not the, the qualities, but that's a cheaper end. I said, 60 bucks, still go to 
them eating or them doing something else, right? That, right. That's, uh, that's vital to them. So, or even just going out of the movies, which sometimes you just need to de-stress and things like yeah. that. So I, I totally get that. So that that's a big chunk, to be honest, Rob. So thanks for bringing that up. It's, it's to be able to make it accessible. Hopefully the quality is there. And I always, I said, well, the good thing is that you can give me feedback and I can quickly just go on Word and change it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the feedback is like, hey, you misspelled something or, or you were off this or we don't understand this. I'm like, okay, well, Tell me what you'd understand coming to office hours. Let's talk about it. And we'll, we'll re, I'll reword it in front of you and, and let me know if this makes more sense. And uh-huh. I'll send out the feedback and then do that. So it's also that I'm more in control instead of having to explain the author's um, vagueness sometimes um, or, or ambiguity. Um, instead of explaining their work in that sense, it's, it, it's, I'm more in control of it. And, and I feel that so are the students in that way too. So that way I can also get a better understanding of what I'm understanding from them and what I'm not. And, and I can do that. So, um, so it's honestly both the cost, save them money when it comes to the logic critical thinking stuff, and also um, having a better understanding of think, uh, how to better promote, I think, mm-hmm. philosophy and, and understand where I'm lacking uh, with respect to them. So. so have you already written this book or are you in the process of writing it? Yeah, uh, it was published for a while. I, I, I said, you know what, I, I no longer want to be part of this contract because it's too expensive. It was like $90 that they were they were charging the students. And uh, I felt bad. <laughs> I said, no, I, I, uh, I, I don't like that. So um, I said, you know what, let's just do it until it, 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 I don't, I don't want to renew or redo it. So I took uh, the rights back. Um, and, and so I'm just now adding more information to it when it comes to the logic stuff right now. And then I'll be adding more of the critical thinking stuff. So it's a work in progress right now. So, so it's, well, I don't know if it is a, I mean, it is a work in progress, but that phrase work in progress suggests it's kind of like not done, but it seems like it's, it's mm-hmm. a work in progress in the same way a Wikipedia entry is a work in progress, right? right? Sure. Where it's one of the yeah. things that, you know, it's, it's kind of a living thing. Like if you access it, it's possible that it'll change as more information is gained, but you shouldn't look at it as something that you can't use now because it's not done. Cause in a certain sense it is done but it's just one that the students can interact with and change through their vocalizing what confuses them or, you know, um, or what else. Now, content-wise in your critical thinking textbook, do you do anything different from, you know, your, your Vaughn Art of Critical Thinking textbook or your Parker and Moore or all these, you know, sort of major textbooks on critical thinking out there? Or do you do the same thing where you say, you know, Here's what an argument is. Here's what informal logic is, deductive logic, uh, fallacies, scientific reasoning, legal reasoning, sign, yeah, and we're out. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, fair. And like I said, so I attribute that with, like I said, the personalized part, which again, I really don't see with some of, as you said, Bon or Mark and Moore and, and some of these other folks, uh, Baronet. Um, and at the same time, I am working with a colleague of mine over here, who's also a former professor of mine, uh, Claude Graton, who emphasizes- what's the, Sorry, what's the colleague's name again? You broke up. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, uh, Claude, uh, Groton. Claude Groton. Claude Groton, okay. Yeah, yeah so he used to work right at, um, he's a Canadian, uh, French-Canadian uh, guy, so- uh, but oh. the guy, the guy, yeah, You gotta I know, get out I of that. I Claude- <laughs> I tell Claude the same thing. I'm like, that's your only flaw, Claude, right? <laughs> right? Um, but no, uh, he's been working on this stuff forever, right? And so he was the one that also helped to get me into philosophy, at, at least at the community college level, that I, I really enjoyed taking his class and now I'm working with him. 
but it's a lot of also from that book make it stick well, i can't remember the author now but it's yeah like and that. i have made it stick. Did, did, did you oh, did you, you go, like right? expose that to you uh like here it is hold on a second i, yeah, I use yeah. this book a lot uh right here make sure. it stick that's it yeah and it's uh peter c brown henry l rodiger the third and mark a mcdaniel so shout out to them yeah for doing that and um yeah, yeah, I, um, I, I didn't think it was for me. I think it might have been Claude. And then I heard it again in a class that I was taking on, and like teaching online and pedagogy that she was using at the time. Uh -huh. And and so it's like, right, that approach where here's the new stuff, but we're going to relate it to some of the old stuff and just keep that approach going over and over and again. And that's what I keep trying to um, to do, at least in this case, that, that I don't see so often with, with the authors that you noted, because for me, it's kind of like, here's legal reasoning and who cares what, uh, like here's something with necessary and sufficient conditions. And this is the only time I'll introduce it and nowhere else And you're like, uh, okay. So for me, it's kind of like introduce all this stuff, right? And then reintroduce it, introduce, reintroduce, introduce, reintroduce. So uh, that's also the approach that I'm trying to take with that stuff is trying to be able to, let's say again, here's necessary and sufficient conditions. Great, we learned it, right? Let's learn this right? Strange stuff. And then yeah. let's uh, learn how to like, let's, we'll do diagramming, right? We'll do this diagramming. Ah, here's this pesky necessary and sufficient condition. Remember when we spoke about it, let's reintroduce it. We talk about legal reasoning. Oh, here we go. These pesky necessary and sufficient condition. Let's reintroduce the reintroduce and, and so on. Right. So again, yeah. th so that's, that's at least what I try to do that I don't called, see with the other authors. That's called spaced learning, right? Where you, um, you, as you were saying, you know, you introduce something and then in the next chapter, you introduce it again. And then maybe two chapters later, you reintroduce it. And then maybe four chapters later, you reintroduce it where it's the sort of thing where the students, because they keep on seeing it in these different contexts, they get a better grasp of the concept and to the point where hopefully they can start to use it more confidently outside of the original context in which they found it. And there's also other things they mentioned in this book. Another one is called interleaved practice where when you introduce a concept, you don't just hit that concept over and over and over again, which is indeed something you see in like the Brooke, the, the, the Moore and Parker book, which is, for instance, they'll introduce a fallacy, right? Maybe two fallacies. And then they'll give you 20 exercises where you just have to identify those two fallacies. And then by the end of the chapter, they'll, they'll have exercises with all the fallacies they covered in that chapter. But um, this is supposedly not the greatest way of teaching because in the real world, when you meet these fallacies, it's not like there are parts of your life where you're only dealing with those two fallacies over and over again. It's just that the fallacies just keep on coming and you know, in all manner and variety and you have to be prepared to encounter one and then a very different one in a different context. And so, yeah, that would be interleaved practice. So, so I take it you're, you're, you're trying to use the lessons of this book in how you constructed the textbook, but the content is more or less the same. It's just that you are um, using different pedagogical techniques from what's normally used. Right, yeah, I don't think it's anything like, you know, oh, guys, I'm, you know, finding something new that hasn't been discovered before. So absolutely mm -hmm. not, right? I mean, that, that's very difficult to do. But certainly looking at that and seeing where I would, right, like I said, learning from make it sick, uh, uh, feedback from students and, and discussing these things with colleagues and see how I can just, get this stuff that they've laid the foundational work and kind of make it hopefully better and not worse. And, and the other thing is also, I think, dealing with um, 
in ordinary language in some way, how these things write, uh, as you know, you read an article, it's not just, well, it's straw man fallacy and complex question. And that's something like, well, I see way more than that. So I think also like reading an article, right, going to whether it's New York Times or Breitbart or whatever the source might be. And I, I tell them, look, read it uh, and let's analyze it in this case. So obviously for purposes of copyright stuff, I'm not going to put that there and then get you know, sued or whatever, but we can bring it up, especially I think now through an online setting, bring up the article. I'm like, let's discuss it. Let's break it through. Let's see what fallacies or, or before even all of that, right? Let's just understand the author right? yeah. and then let's go through the, the analysis of it to understand before you critique type of analysis. So I, I think also going through that ordinary, uh, maybe everydayness in some sense of dealing with these type of things, um, we try to analyze too, or at least I try. So do you consider your writing of this textbook and your continuing, continuously updating it to be your research? And if so, have you been like diving into the debates in critical thinking literature about say what critical thinking is, right? Is critical thinking just a kind of reflective thinking? Is critical thinking something we do all the time? Uh, is critical thinking just a form of problem solving? And then, you know, you get into some people don't like uh, even talking about fallacies at, at all. They, they think it's misleading to talk about fallacies. Basically, all we're doing is talking about bad reasoning. Maybe some bad reasoning shows up more than others, but when you just list, say, 18 fallacies, you get the sense that there are these 18 kinds of bad reasoning, when in fact, there's all sorts of ways in which reasoning can go bad. And if you just give it these few names, you're going to mislead students into underestimating it. And then, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things you've seen critical thinking textbooks start to do is they've started to handle cognitive biases and using the whole Kahneman and Tversky stuff and having chapters on that. And, you know, if you, if you look at research and in informal logic, it turns out it's a very, uh, I'm not going to say happening because I, I still think it's kind of, kind of marginalized as a field, but there's lots of research in it, lots of foment, lots of disagreements about what informal logic is, you know, what inductive logic is, and whether the, the extent to which it can be formalized in the first place and that kind of stuff. So have you been looking at that stuff in the writing of your textbook and, you know, maybe even trying to pursue articles and for journals like argumentation and stuff like that? Yeah, so I'm starting to look more and more into that for sure. Like I said, my, my colleague Clark, he he's the one that, um, does a lot of that stuff. So I go to him and see like, hey, where can I read this stuff? His criticism is um, that critical thinking is for sure lip service, right? He says, mm -hmm. we talk about it all the time, but what really is it? And when you ask people to define it, they, they struggle a lot in some sense to say what, what this method, I guess, is in some way, if it even is a method, as you pointed out. So, and, and one of the big things too, like I said, that you were noting um, is teaching informal fallacies. Because it's just sometimes it's kind of like, oh, cool, I put the label on it. I don't have to really think about it any further. Whereas there's like, well, who cares about the label? Tell me about its analysis, where it went wrong. Yeah. And it's rather, I don't care if you call it right in the fuel to pity. Where did this thing go wrong, this, this error in, 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 in reasoning? So I, I think sometimes it's kind of like this people kind of, uh, there's the label. Let's move on with life, right? Oh, you committed a straw man. Right? So there you go. Um, and I think it's sad. So for me, it's it's um, it's both trying to approach it right where the literature says where it goes right and wrong. So it's first let's teach it where you'll find it in other textbooks, and then let's see where go beyond that and, and try to look just at the the, the error in reasoning. So it, because I think what happens sometimes if you do just the latter, it's like let me just say where they went wrong, and so I'll just teach it this way. 
well, when they do approach it or I don't know what these things mean. I'm like, so I think we also do a disservice if we don't also introduce a way that we disagree with pedagogically speaking, like, oh, here's the label, let's move on. I think it's important to introduce that and then also say, well, how is how we would approach it? How I think Mm -hmm. is a better way to approach it. So I think it's introducing both those types of things. And again, that's where I'm looking more at um, Debbie Hutchins' work when it comes to the cognitive approach of understanding how is it that students are learning things like formal logic and inductive logic and so on, and what we can learn from that approach in writing and even teaching logic to students as well. Because oftentimes, it's, it's, um, again, it can just be uh, mental gymnastics doing a lot of these proofs, right? So do these proofs are like, cool, I understand how to put these things together. But I'm like, well, when you ask them if they can reason better, I think the answer is no. And that sucks. I wish the answer yeah. was yes. They can tell me, I can do proofs, right? I yeah. can do a conditional proof or I can find a contradiction, but I'm like, do you really know what that means in this line of reason? And, and I think often the answer is no. So I, I think it's explaining more that process when it comes to derivations, um, what it means, right? Breaking this conditional statement, what those conditional statements mean and, and working more, I think more of the analysis because oftentimes again, you know, the books that you, um, right, the, the usual suspects, I guess we can call them, is like, cool, here, we taught you how to do this group, and well, that was it, right, no, no further analysis into it, like, well, cool, I was able to break this conditional thing, well, well, what do I get from that, right, it's like, well, so l- l- let me ask you this, do you think teaching critical thinking, how long have you been teaching it? Oh, uh, they're about five years or so, yeah. Do you think teaching it has made you a better critical thinker? <laughs> Um, I mean, I I think it's made me a better critical thinker for what it's worth, right? I don't think there's anything embarrassing about saying yes, but I have a theory about why that might be. But I I want to see, first of all, if if the answer for you is yes or not, because if the answer for you is no, that's, that would surprise me, but I'd also be interested in why. Yes. How about I don't know, right? Uh, don't I don't know. know in the sense, right? I don't know. So, I, I mean, for sure, it's allowed me to see things differently. If, if by differently, we mean a better critical thinker than, then okay. But again, if, if we want to talk about consistency and, and I'm uh, in the sense of, okay, um, the, the, the critical thinking process is uh, made, let's see how to formulate this, right? I'll just leave it as I don't know yet. How about that? Um, I, yeah, I think okay. that I, I, the, the best way to go about knowing if you know this stuff better is to teach it for sure and then get those questions and write them down and then come back to it. But I don't know if I think at least leave it as I think it's made me a better um, teacher at critical thinking, but I don't know if that itself can be called a better critical thinker. So that's where my confusion is. Yeah. Yeah, so good. So like, and that you're getting at the thing I was thinking about, which is that one of the problems with critical thinking is that even if you do well in a critical thinking class, it doesn't follow you'll do well outside of that class, right? So you might learn how to take the test well, but it doesn't follow that you'll be able to identify fallacies in the wild. One of the things I think happens when you teach a critical thinking class is that first of all, when you teach it over and over and over again, you just get the names of all the fallacies. You get how deductive and inductive logic works kind of in your bones, right? And then you can kind of, you might not think to ask yourself, oh, am I doing inductive logic right now? Am I doing deductive logic right now? But if it should come up, you can answer that, right? Whereas for the students, if it comes up, even if they did well in the class, I would bet the vast majority of them won't be able to say if they were doing inductive or deductive logic unless they were in the classroom. 
But one of the things that happens when you're a critical thinking teacher, and especially if you're writing a book, is that you become, you get on the hunt, right? You're on the hunt for examples. And you're also yes. trying to see, you know, what's, what's a particular context I can use to put some flesh on these bones so I have something less abstract to say, especially if you're trying to make your textbook more appealing to students who don't have the same academic preparation, let's say, as the students at, you know, the top 100 universities or whatever. And so you have to find a way to make it re relevant. And so I think just because you broaden your context, you're going to be better at critical thinking. I mean, of course, it's going to depend on what you mean by critical thinking. And maybe there's some definitions where it's not going to be better, right? Like if you have a very broad definition of critical thinking, where even animals engage in critical thinking, and all critical thinking is, is just trying to solve problems you have, then I'm not sure if taking a critical thinking course will make you any better at solving problems. Because that really seems to me to be quite experiential and very hard to get a general abstract approach to. But if you are defining critical thinking as being able to reason according to the canons of classical logic or whatever, I think, yeah, you can get better at that. And teaching the class is probably one good way to do it. Um, besides critical thinking research, did you, um, you got a master's degree from CSULA. Did you go anywhere else after that for any more graduate preparation? I did for a bit. So I stayed as ABD. Uh, I went to the European graduate school. And uh, uh, unfortunately, just with the, the thesis advisor there, things, things didn't go. Well, I changed it more from this, um, as you remember, this um, aspect of looking at a metaphysical paper of Nietzsche to changing a bit more to political philosophy with Rawls. Um, so I wanted to tie back up with, um, um, with the golden rule, right, in the sense of where things went right in his uh, veil of ignorance and where, where things went wrong. So I wanted to criticize it and go about it that way was a disagreement and I didn't want to put up a fight so I say I'll just stick as an ABD right for now um, uh -huh. but um, in, in that sense uh, um, I, I was looking into both like I said WD Ross uh, in the sense of intuitionism and also like I said the golden rule as well and how they tie with uh, a Rawlsian political philosophy. And so it's kind of funny because in a way, your research on the golden rule is probably helping to motivate your research into this critical thinking textbook because part of the reason you're writing it is because, boy, if I were somebody who was a first-generation college student in a community college right now, I would want to have this kind of approach. And so, so that's, that's pretty interesting. But you're right now not researching golden rule ethics right now, or are you? Right now, like I would say now. It's more the logic critical thinking looking into that and, and writing the OER, yeah. Okay. Good. As an open educational resource. Sir. Right, right. It took me a second. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, like, I thought of like OED and like, oh, you're doing the dictionary. Uh, oh, oh, gosh, no. <laughs> great. And tell me more. Uh, but okay. All right. Well, thank you for uh, talking with me today, uh, Alberto. And um, I think that uh, uh, I'm looking forward to, to looking into your textbook and seeing how it develops. And so, um, and what's the name of your textbook for anybody who's interested in looking looking it up oh so yeah right it's logic and language how to begin to understand arguments logic and language how to begin to understand arguments, arguments. Mm -hmm. all right i like that how to begin to understand right. yeah <laughs> I, I don't want to take some right, very uh, yeah how you will know how, what arguments are by the end right like i got yeah. ripped off <laughs> <laughs> i expected a 68 premise argument all right <laughs> all right well with that i'll see you later 
And thanks for joining us with Everyday Philosophers.